What an absolute blessing for us to be together on the first of the week. It is God who designed this, and it is a blessing for us to participate. I saw a brother posted this morning that it's just an ordinary Sunday, and we've got more than 10,000 reasons to be thankful, and he's absolutely right. There is plenty to be thankful for today. We've got visitors with us. We're grateful to see you here. We're able to be out, even though there's a pandemic still on, and we're able to be out and freely worshiping together with one another, lifting our voices together in praise. We've just got a lot to be thankful for. The text that was read a few moments ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the great treatise on love in the New Testament, and it's read often at weddings. I read it at my stepsister's wedding years ago. And some people will read this text and they'll sort of get this flutter about them as they're thinking about this idea of love. Just before I moved here, uh, back in 2020, had an opportunity to teach a group of young uh, disciples in Brazil on online study. And we were talking about the issue of selfishness versus service or versus responsibility and sort of preparing these young disciples for their future. And I was given the task of talking a little bit about marriage and the difference between conforming to the world's standard of selfishness or the Lord's standard of responsibility. And the more I've dealt with couples, Christian couples or non-Christian couples, couples that have been together for a long time, I've begun to realize what a great blessing this lesson would be for those of us who have been married for a while as well. If we know someone who's going to be married, this would be a blessing to share with them. If we're married, it's a blessing to us. And if we're going to help others who are married, it's going to be a blessing to know these things that come from the Lord's will. I want to apologize for the slides there. Some of the text will be a little bit small. This was an online study originally when I put these together. But I think it's important to share the information that's on these. I'll be glad to make these slides available to you if you'd like them later. Uh, none of this stuff is really original to me. Obviously, most of what we're going to be looking at is Bible text. And some of it is just some definitions that I just pulled off the Internet that I think are helpful for us to look at. But I really want to encourage you to consider this question of romantic love versus Christian love. <laughs> when we think about marriage, and even when we think about 1 Corinthians 13 sometimes, we get wrapped up in our ideas of what love is before we actually see what the Bible says about what love is. And I think we need to take a step back sometimes and consider love as the Bible presents it to us. I first want to start off just talking about this idea of love. Where does this come from? Well, it's God who tells us what love is. It's God who defines love. If you'll go with me to 1 John chapter 4, there's a couple of verses we'll look at there. Verses that you know, but sometimes we just need to think about these for a minute. Because love is something so intimate and personal to us, sometimes we feel like it started with us. Oh, no one loves like I love. No one feels what I feel when they talk about love. And so we get this sort of concept that love must have begun in the hearts of men. But 1 John 4, verse 19 says, We love because He first loved us. Some of your versions will say, We love Him because He first loved us. That is a textual issue. Either way, love originated first with God. And God has the right then to define what love really is and what love really looks like. I remember when I first came to Christ, I struggled sometimes with some of the things in the Bible that this loving God allowed to happen. Or that this loving God commanded to happen. And I struggled with that because I didn't really know what love was. And the more I learned to trust God and to love God, I recognized that even the acts that I thought were, were off the cuff, that I thought were untenable by a loving God, were acts of love. 
and we began to realize what real love looks like and the service that real love provides. 1 John 4 verse 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God not only made love, He defines love by His very nature. And the closer we draw to Him, the more we're going to understand what love is. The better servants we're going to be of our wives and our husbands and our children and our brethren and the society at large. The more we truly learn what love is, it's going to help us, not just in our marriages, but as marriages as the basis of our communities and our society, it's going to help the society at large. That's what we need. So we need first to understand it's God who defines what love is. Second, we need to understand it's God that created marriage. It was not necessity that created marriage. It wasn't loneliness that created marriage. In fact, in the text in, John, in Genesis chapter 2, we'll look at in just a moment, God didn't say it wasn't good for the man to be lonely. He said it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And there's a difference in those two. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But sometimes, because of the way love is portrayed in the movies and on TV and even in our own homes sometimes, we get the idea that love was invented by people. And, you know, maybe by rock stars or movie stars or just by lonely people. It's God who created marriage and love. So let's go to Genesis 1 and look at a couple of texts there quickly. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we see that he created man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. That's mankind. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created two sexes. And he made them distinct in so many ways, physically distinct from one another. He made them to have sexual function. And he made them to have desire, one for another. God instituted marriage by making two different people that are intimately related to one another and meant to be able to have intimate union. It's also God who says, though, in Hebrews 13 and verse 4, that marriage is holy, is honorable among all. The bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. There is marriage that is sanctioned by God. He defines it, He created it, and it needs to be done according to His will. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Alone is a state. Lonely is a feeling. God's not dealing with a feeling here that Adam was just so lonely in the garden that he needed somebody. God himself was not alone. From creation, let us make man in our image. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit working together in a blessed arrangement. And God intended that man should not be alone. It's interesting that after seven times up to this point in Genesis, God saying, this is good, this is good, this is very good. All of a sudden he says, it is not good that man should be alone. God in his wisdom decreed that man should not be alone. And he created the woman to be the answer to that. So in Genesis uh, 2.18, he creates woman and brings her to be this comparable helper. His plan included the two of them being together. In fact, in verse 24, as God then makes his commentary on this first marriage and his commentary for all marriages that would follow, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God's plan for marriage includes the union, both sexual, physical, emotional, spiritual, in planning and in function 
of the man and the woman so they can help one another. It was God's design. And marriage, most rightly, shows that design. In Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees who want to ask some questions, trying to get him to take sides and trying to trip him up, they ask him about divorce. I've always loved the way Jesus handles this text. When they ask about divorce, Jesus teaches about marriage. If you know what marriage is, if you know what love is that's in a marriage, divorce is not a question that comes up. It's not an issue. But if you don't, if you live thinking we invented love and we invented marriage and it's not convenient anymore, then divorce all of a sudden becomes a viable option. Jesus responds to their questions about divorce by defending marriage. Let's start at verse 3, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. He went right back to Genesis 2, by the way. In fact, every time we see defense of marriage in the Bible, Genesis 2 is a text that's used. Isn't that interesting? That's God's commentary on marriage. It's God's design for marriage. So Jesus defended marriage against divorce by defending the true nature of marital union. God brought them together to be one, and only death can separate that. God's the one who controls that. Interestingly enough, later on in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes to the same text. He's just got done talking about, in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. And then he gives the sense of it in verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Let that sink in for just a moment. What Paul is saying is that the design of marriage from the beginning in Genesis was meant to show something about God's desire for a relationship with us. Paul says that desire was most fully fulfilled in Christ's relationship to the church. This parable of this physical marriage was really meant to show a truth about this relationship of Christ and His church. And so it's no wonder that people don't have the right attitude about what the church is, about who Christ is. If we have such wrong attitudes about marriage and about love, how can we possibly understand the one who gave himself entirely in love to be married to us as his church and understand what that relationship is supposed to look like? It's no wonder it's a mess. So I say, those of us who understand that at least somewhat, we're going to learn more about it today, I pray, but those of us who understand that ought to be defending and practicing marriages that conform to the Lord's pattern and not to the world's. And I want to challenge you to look at your marriage because I want to suggest to you that the world has had more influence on your marriage than you think it has. That the ideas and the concepts the world lays out are probably what you've been building your marriage on more than you think you have. But God can set you straight according to His teaching. And we just need to understand the simplicity of what He's teaching and we need to defend it and show it to other people in our own lives as we live our marriage before our children before our neighbors, before the church, and before our community. We need to be uh, living the kind of life that God's pattern determines for our marriages. And it's going to make a huge difference if we'll do that. So the world's pattern for marriage involves a lot of wrong concepts that men have created. We're not going to look today, we don't have time, to look at homosexuality and homosexual marriages. We just don't have time to look at that. 
polyandry and polygamy, those are also wrong concepts that men who thought they invented marriage came up with, bestiality, other terrible things like that, we don't have time to get into. Those are really obvious deviations from God's pattern. Likely none of you are struggling with that. However, if you are, please come see me. Please find a trusted brother and talk to them about that. If you're struggling with these things, they are real things that sin brings into this world. You may be struggling with it. Seek help with that. But it's likely that's not the issue we're going to be dealing with mostly today. And so in the lesson today, I want to examine this question of selfishness versus responsibility and think about a deviation that's much more uh, capable of ensnaring us, and it does it so subtly that we don't notice it. Those things are big. The other thing that's going to uh, easily ensnare us, as the language from Hebrews indicates, is this romantic idealization of what love is. And I think it's a huge issue, and I see it more and more. The more I study with people about their marriages and where they've broken down, this becomes a central issue every single time. And so bear with me as I work through some definitions. First, let's look at what the word romantic means. And I'm sorry this is so small up here. Like I said, you can have this later if you'd like a copy of these slides. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to think about what's being said here. This is from Wikipedia. The definition of romantic. Initially just an attitude or state of mind. Romanticism later takes the form of a movement, and the romantic spirit begins entirely to designate a worldview centered on the individual. Let me do a pause here. I was a literature major in college, and we began to study Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who by many is considered the father of, of the Romantic movement. And he became the father of the Romantic movement by publishing his journals. <laughs> Let me tell you what I did today. Let me tell you what I think about that. And that's what Romanticism is based on, the individual. It was the first time anybody had ever thought of just saying, here's what I think about this, here's how I feel. And that became the basis for the Romantic movement. Romantic authors began to turn more and more to themselves, depicting the human drama, tragic love, utopian ideals, and the desire for escapism. If the 18th century was marked by objectivity, the Enlightenment, and by reason, the beginning of the 19th century would be marked by lyricism, by subjectivity, by emotionalism, and by self. The term romantic refers to, uh, refers to the aesthetic movement, that is, to the idealistic or poetic tendency of one who lacks a sense of the objective. I can't look at things objectively. I can only look at things as, how does that make me feel? How does that, uh, how, do, how do I fit into this? We see that sometimes even in Bible classes. What do I think about this verse? You know what? The Bible verse doesn't care what you think about it. <laughs> what did God mean by that verse? That's what we ought to be getting at. But sometimes we'll, we'll digress in a Bible class of, well, what do I think about this? What do you think about that? That's not the right kind of questioning when we're studying the Bible. I'm getting off the, the task here. One who lacks a sense of the objective, though, only thinks of, how does this make me feel? That's the romantic spirit. Romanticism is the art of dream and fantasy. It values the creative forces of the individual and of popular imagination. It opposes the balance found in classical art and is based in the inspiration of the powerful but fleeting moments of a subjective life. That's the way romantics talk. Take advantage of this moment. Oh, it's fleeting and you might not get it back. That's kind of beautiful. We were raised to think that way, and there's, there's good in that. But if that's all you're ever chasing is the moment that's fleeting, and you're never thinking objectively of the goal, <laughs> never thinking of how this is going to affect the rest of my life, you can see where people's lives have ended up by romantic idealism. That's why credit cards are up to the max. <laughs> oh, I've got to have this now. Oh, it makes me feel good to have this now. People are overeating, and they're killing themselves by doing that because it's the moment that matters. That's a romantic idea. It's just embedded in our society. 
So I want you to think about those concepts. You may already be seeing how these are troublesome. It's a worldview centered on the individual. Everything that matters is what matters to me. How do I see this? How do I feel about this? Here's a desire for escapism. What do you think the divorce rates are so high for? This didn't work out. It's not what I thought it was going to be. They don't fulfill me anymore. I'll get out of it. I'll go do something else. Or just to get away. I'm just going to go. I'm going to escape. Marked by lyricism. Everything is poetic and beautiful and flowery. By subjectivity, because this is what feels good to me. It makes me be emotional. So emotionalism rules the day and the self is the center. I have no sense of what objectively is important. That's a word I've used a lot in recent studies with people who are struggling in their marriage. Be objective. What is going on? What's the problem? Not how do you feel about it. What's the problem? Inspired by the powerful but fleeting moments of a subjective life. That's where they draw the inspiration because things are just going, uh, going crazy. They're going off the, off the wire and so we've got to take advantage now. In purely historical terms, Romanticism is really new. It's only been around about 250 years. And it's a concept that's completely foreign to the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about, well, how do you feel about this? <laughs> this doesn't. The Bible's very objective. And when we see relationships in the Bible, they're objective. They're based on love, and there's real love. But they're objective. They're not based on feelings primarily. The problem is, Romanticism informs the cultural basis. Let me insert the word, the cultural bias, <laughs> for nearly everything that is commonly called love in our society today. But it's a love that's sentimental, that is sensual, it's feeling love, rather than rational. It doesn't think about what love really needs to be thinking about. It's, what do I feel about this? It's selfish rather than altruistic. It's, I'll serve somebody, but if I get something out of it. I'll serve some, somebody because they make me feel good when I do it. How do I love you? Let me count the ways. If you look at that, it's actually pretty selfish. It's the things that you make me feel about you that I like. It's not just you. It's what I feel because of you. That's selfish in the end. And it becomes then carnal rather than holy because I'm only thinking of this moment and the desire of this moment and not really thinking about something that's beyond and has long-lasting intrinsic value. And it's so subtle and it's so continuous. It's innocently taught to us, and I say innocently in quotes there by our parents sometimes. Certainly the television, popular music, they're all pushing the romantic ideal. They have been for a couple of centuries now. But even our parents, when they come along and say, isn't that one cute? <laughs> what are you thinking of? <laughs> it's only externals. <laughs> when, are we encouraging to be looking at only externals? Or are we encouraging to think about, now I like that person's personality. Look at their character. Look at the kind of person they are. Not, what do they look like? What kind of clothes do they wear? What kind of friends do they have? That, that's a romantic ideal. And it's really selfish in the end. And so our own parents sometimes kind of push us into that. We may be pushing our children into that without realizing how much we do that. And the end of that is a consequence of sensual relationships. When I say sensual, I mean just based on the moment, based on the feeling. And so if it doesn't feel right, we're not really interested. That, that person doesn't make me feel the way some other person makes me feel. I'm not saying feelings shouldn't be involved. There's a great uh, line I heard years ago. I don't have a, a, a source for this. But somebody was talking about the difference between these arranged marriages that they have in China and, and some other places in the Middle East. And we think that's just horrible. An arranged marriage? How could you? That's cruelty. <laughs> it used to be the way things were done. In the Bible, you see that a lot. And arranged marriages worked out. But what these people said about the, the marriages in China compared to the marriages in the United States. In the United States, people start off burning hot and they go to freeze. <laughs> and then they get divorced and there's all kinds of terrible stuff that happens. In China... We start off cold and we bring it to a boil. <laughs> That's because they learn to love each other. 
truly to love each other, to serve one another in their needs, and they grow in their love. In the United States, unfortunately, and in most of Western society, we like somebody, we're all heated up about it, we all, it's all the feelings, and then, oh well, they don't do that for me anymore. This person does now. Isn't that terrible? But we see the results of that. That's a romantic concept and idea. That's not the way the Bible pictures love. But first, let's take a test. Are you already a victim of these subtle errors of romanticism? I want to suggest that you probably are. Maybe you haven't even realized it, but here's a couple of easy things to look at. Have you ever cheered for adultery in a soap opera or a novel or some TV movie or something? you ever cheered for adultery? Like, what I mean is, well, that person married the wrong person. That was their person they should have married. And now they're in this loveless relationship, but here's this person the whole time. So many plots are around that. There's lots of movies where the plot's around that. I remember watching some movies and thinking, oh, I hope those people don't have a right to be married so they can be married to this person, because I'm trying to think of it biblically. But it's still cheering in some way for some adulterous tryst to work out, and I began to realize that that's not right. That's not pleasing to God. But it's just the way I was brought up to think, well, you know, that's the wrong person. And so that's the other question. Do you really believe this? I put really because when you think about it, nobody believes this, but we believe this. There's a soulmate out there for me. And of all these billions of people in the world, there's one that's out there that's just for me. And I'm just going to run into him one day on the street. And what happens because of this, this predestined love is, I marry one because I thought that was my soulmate, and then sits down right next to me at work, the lady who's actually my soulmate. And so now what am I going to do? I'm going to find a way out of this relationship because my soulmate's right here. And people do that with a clear conscience because, well, you know, I took too long to recognize the one God was really sending to me. Really? And then they blame God. Do we really believe that? Our society does <laughs> in a big way. It doesn't take long talking to teenagers. They, they'll tell you right away. There's a soulmate out there. There's one out there, just perfect person waiting for me. You know the best way to find the perfect person? Be the perfect person. <laughs> Work on yourself until you are the kind of person that will be able to marry and do it well and serve what we're going to see in just a moment. Then it won't matter who the other person is you marry. It's going to work out because you're going to be. Do you really believe we just can't help who we fall in love with? It just happens. It's just something that happens to us. We can't control that. Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> in fact, you do. <laughs> Because you see somebody that makes you feel a certain way and then you begin to investigate. Then you begin to put yourself in their path. Then you begin to do all these things that then naturally leads you to begin to think you're falling in love with them. And you could do it with somebody else if that wasn't the person that did it for you. <laughs> we control that. We don't think we do. We think it's just all this random chance because it's the right person that came along at the right time. But we invest in that. That's why that happens. And that's why adultery ends up happening. Because things aren't going as you think it should at home, but this person makes you feel good and you begin to invest it's a little bit of time. We'll just go out to lunch once. I'll just go see a movie and, oh, look, they're here too. And then all of a sudden, what happened? There's been investment in the adultery. It's not just a chance. Hardly ever is it just, oh, all of a sudden something happened. There's been some sort of investment there. We do help who we fall in love with. It's a romantic idea to think we can't. What about this one? Do you believe it would be impossible to love someone you've never personally met? Well, I hope as a Christian you don't believe that because <laughs> that's going to undermine part of your faith. <laughs> Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 8. I want to start in verse 7, actually. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. It's talking about rejoicing in trials, and he says, 
So that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. That's not some touchy-feely kind of love. That is, I know objective truths about this person. I know what they did for me, even though he's been dead for 2,000 years and resurrected. I love him. And this is love that Peter's talking about here. And it's the love that will prove my faith through difficult things. I've never met Jesus personally, like person to person. But I can love him. I better love him. Colossians chapter 2. Here's a better example. That's Jesus, right? (laughs) We've got to love Jesus. But look at Colossians chapter 2. I love this from Paul. Verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Could Paul love anybody he'd never seen face to face? Like all the Laodiceans, like the Colossians, like so many others that he'd never personally met, that he loved so much, he was in great conflict over them. In prayer, in suffering, in traveling to get there and being shipwrecked over time. How much conflict he suffered because he loved these people that he'd never met. I hope there's people in your life that you love that you've never met, that you're praying for, that you're in conflict over. That's a blessing. But I certainly hope you're properly loving the ones you have met. But I want to suggest these sort of test questions to you. I think you may be more influenced by romanticism than you realize you are. So what does the Bible say about marriage? Well, certainly the worldview is going to be different. The worldview in God's view of love and marriage is centered on the Lord. Ephesians 5. Let's drop back there again. I want to read a few verses here, and I want you to notice the focus in these verses. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submit to your own husbands because they're great guys, and they deserve every bit of submission. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes I'm not. But it's not what it says. Submit to your husband because he gives you the touchy feelings, and he's a great guy. Submit to him as to the Lord. The focus is on God. Ephesians 5, 25. The instructions for the husband. Husband, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Husband loves your wives because they make you feel a certain way. No, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The focus is Christ and his love. And that's the kind of love you need. In 1 Peter chapter 3, another text that talks about our relationship with husband and wife, I want you to notice again the focus is not the husband or the wife. Notice the focus. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So it sounds like the husband's the focus, but what's the focus? Winning the husband is the focus. His soul is the focus. That's a spiritual focus. That's spiritual vision in the relationship. It's not, he makes me feel good, so today I'm going to treat him well. It's, he's got a soul, so today I'm going to treat him well. (laughs) Today I'm going to do what his soul needs most of all. Sometimes that's hard. There's going to be tough days in doing that. But if that's where your focus is, those tough days you're going to get through. And you're going to be focused on his soul, not on your feelings about 
His goodness or badness. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. <laughs> the focus on the wife is in the relationship with God. I don't want my prayers to be hindered. I want to be able to continue my relationship with the Lord, so I better be doing what's right by my wife. Again, all of this focus is not on the individual, not on me, and it's not on the individual of my affection. It's on the Lord. That's a problem sometimes. Men especially want to put all their affections on, on the wife, and they, they love their wife in such a way, or the women then love their husbands in such a way that they smother them, and then they've got all their affections here, and when something goes wrong, they're destroyed because the object of their affection was not something solid and consistent. It was not someone solid and consistent. It was a person who's going to have ups and downs, going to have good days and bad days. It's going to disappoint you, but the Lord never will. And if that's where our focus is, we'll have the strength we need to serve on the days we're disappointed, whether husband or wife. A worldview centered on the Lord. Instead of the desire for escapism, which is characteristic in romantic movement, the desire to serve with responsibility is where the focus is in the Lord's type of marriage. Let's go back to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 now in verse 24. The, uh, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Again, the wife's duty here is to submit herself to the husband, not to act contrary to him, and not for the husband to force her into submission. She has a duty that she's been given to submit herself to him just as the church to the Lord. Again, the focus is on the Lord, but it's on her service in submitting to him and to his needs. In fact, this whole text began with submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. They're all doing what's best for the other person. There's a large mistrust in marriages now. Well, I'm going to submit myself to him, but he's going to take advantage of me. He's going to abuse me. It doesn't say submit when he's not going to take advantage and when he's not going to abuse. Submit. That Lord will talk to the husband of what he's supposed to do. You do what the Lord tells you to do. And one of you is going to be sinning, or both of you, and it's going to cause disruptions, but the only way back is to go find out what the Lord said to do and do that. You do your part, he does his part, and the Lord brings you together. That's the way it's supposed to work. So as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. That is your duty as a wife. That was really hard for me. I was a feminist when I came to the Lord. And that was really hard for me because I was so used to men oppressing women. There's an allusion to that as well. It's not as bad as it's made out to look. But when men do what God tells them to do, women then will do what they're supposed to do. And when women do what they're supposed to do, then the men will do what they're supposed to do if they're both looking to the Lord. That's the way it's meant to work. So in Ephesians 5, starting at verse 25, read this text with me. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The wife is to submit herself to the husband. The husband is to give himself for the wife. Well, there's a lack of that going on. <laughs> to sanctify her, to cleanse her by the word, to present her to God without defect. That's going to take absolute sacrifice on my part. 
That's not going to be escapism. Oh, she's probably going to be grouchy. I'm going to go to the bar with my friends after work today. Or I'm going to go play golf. Or I'm going to go... Whatever these excuses that come up in marriages. Now, the Christian's excuses are going to be a little different, perhaps. But we may still be seeking this escapism rather than dealing with what needs to be dealt with, which is me sacrificing myself for her benefit as she's submitting herself to me for my benefit and so that the Lord can be glorified in our relationship. It is serving with responsibility, not escapism, that is the focus of the marriage as God sees it. The marriage in God's view and love in God's view is marked by objectivity, by reason, and by care for the other person. In other words, objectivity is what needs to be done. What are the facts? What needs to be taken care of? How can I reason through this? Now, how can I feel through this? Sometimes I'm going to feel like getting up and going to work, but the reasoning is I need to pay for things that are objectively going to come due, so I'm going to work. <laughs> I've got to provide for my family. <laughs> That's an objective reasoning thing. That's not a feeling thing where, oh, it'll probably come out all right in the end. I'll just put it on the credit card. That's subjectivity. <laughs> we don't want that objectivity, reason, and care for the other person. So in Matthew 19, when they said, well, can we divorce for just any reason? Jesus said, well, let me tell you objectively what the standard is. Read it. You can read it for yourself. Did you not read what God said? They are joined together. They're not going to be separated unless God separates them. And that's going to be by death. So that's an objective response to a subjective question. In Matthew chapter 5, he made it even worse. He, un- he helped them understand how bad their decision was. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, the first time he mentions this question about divorce is when he's talking about adultery. And he says, uh, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, they're trying to talk about how righteous they are because they're handing out certificates of divorce and they're following Moses' law. And Jesus says, you know what you're doing? You're creating cases of adultery when you do that. You're making her become an adulteress. Whoever marries her is an adulterer. And so if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're by no means going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They think they're righteous because they're following the letter of the law, but they are causing problems and division and sin. And so he says... If you don't do what you're supposed to with your wife, you may be guilty of pushing her into adultery. (laughs) Wow. So in Ephesians 5, again, going back to that great text on, uh, on love and on marriage. Ephesians 5, verses 28 and 29. Here's what he tells the, the husband. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. It is the maximum in care. We're pretty objective when it comes to taking care of ourselves. As subjective as that might seem like it would be, we're objective about it. We get the job done. We make sure we know what needs and we get it taken care of. Ephesians 5.33 Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This word is an interesting word. It's phobia. It's phobeo from the Greek, but it's where we get our word phobia. It's fear, that respectful fear for her husband. There's been a lot of debate about that. I think our brother Wayne Jackson does a good job of sort of detailing this. The respect that the wife must have for her husband shows itself in many practical ways. She does not criticize him in front of others. Rather, she honors him. She does not speak to him disrespectfully, nor does he speak to her that way. She does not ignore the realm of responsibilities that are unique to her condition as his wife. And she does not seek to do behind his back 
things she knows he would never approve of. That may be convicting for some. Maybe convicting for some men as well. The men that don't love their wives as they ought to sometimes get involved in some of these same things. But the idea here of fear, of phobia, is the same word that's used in the fear of God. And I believe that's really the realm here. She submits to her husband, not out of fear of him, that he's going to abuse her if she doesn't, out of fear of God who has established this relationship. It is a relationship of awe because God has made it. It's a relationship of this reverence for something holy that God has created and that we have done our best to destroy. (laughs) We need to get back to what God's view of marriage is. In 1 Corinthians 7, again, a tough text if you're uh, thinking about abuses that the world has done with, with God's plan. But not that tough when you understand what God has in mind for marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I don't have authority over my own body. Not in a marriage. You have to submit to the needs of your partner in marriage, your spouse. God designed it that way. And so this idea of, well, I'm just going to take a break, or I'm going to go on strike, or whatever, that doesn't happen in a godly marriage. The only time there's ever a break is when the two have agreed, there's consent, and it seems to me when there's a spiritual focus on what we see in the text here. There is love that means the demands of the other person outweigh my demands. And what I mean by demands is not their wants and desires. It's their needs. It's what needs to be taken care of. I am to do that for them. And finally, instead of being inspired by fleeting moments of of subjectivity, it's really a marriage that God designed is based on the complete and objective inspiration of the divine life. In other words, Jesus was the perfect example. Although he never married, he's the perfect example for us. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. There's some objectivity to what he has revealed. And we've already looked at some of that, but look at this with me. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Our marriages, our relationships with our spouses belong to both realms. (laughs) It is part of life. It's part of what we're going to be dealing with in this realm here. But it also affects godliness. Our prayers can be hindered. (laughs) We can be sinning against God by sinning against our wives or against our husbands. And so it affects godliness. It affects where we're headed after this. It is the relationship that is most going to affect where we're headed after this. We better be getting it right. Because it can destroy us and we can destroy another person if we're not doing it the way God intended. The Bible must govern our marriages because the Bible was meant to give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Texts we know well, but I pray you'll be seeing them in a new light in this context at least. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. You can probably quote that with me. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
But the point of this is, as we properly understand marriage through the text of the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, that is a part of becoming complete in our service to God. The more we learn, the more complete we can be, the more equipped we can be to have the kind of marriages that will be doing the good works that marriages were meant to do in the first place. Bearing fruit to God and bearing fruit in our lives to God. And then 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's something you may not have thought about. This is such an important part of marriage in the relationship of the Christian community and then our communities at large. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reference. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Did you understand that that means he's married? (laughs) That he's got a good marriage? That he's managed to maintain this relationship with the one wife? That he's managed to raise up these faithful children who are in submission and are reverent? That's important. And it comes from good marriages. Those are the kind of men who are being looked at there as elders, as bishops that are desiring this good work. We see a very similar thing in Titus chapter 1 in verses 5 and 6. I just want to share these two passages with you. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, he's married. He's well married. The point of that is that good marriages serve the church well. Because good marriages, the people are serving each other well already. They've groomed themselves to service by looking to serve one another. And they're serving their children well, shown by the fact they've brought them up to be reverent and faithful and taught them also then to be servants. And therefore, they're probably serving their neighbors well. So they're serving well at work. They're serving well at the grocery store when they go there. They're certainly serving the congregation well normally. And then as they rise into this good work of being elders, they serve even more. Good marriages are the backbone of a solid community, a spiritual community as well as our, as our physical communities. And so I hope this comparison will give you something to think about as you look at your own relationships, your own marriages, as you make plans, perhaps if you're not married yet, as you begin to think about what marriage might mean for you, as you see people in the church or in your community that are struggling in their marriages. This is how you can help them. You can lead them to God's standard for marriage. You can model it in your life and you can help them to see it by teaching the truth about it. Romance, as good as it feels, is not what we need. In this world that's increasingly self-centered, the last thing that's needed is more of the romantic notion of love. Because the kind of love that God calls us to begins with himself, then serves others for his sake, and places self last of all. So the great commandment in Matthew 22, when the scribe comes to Jesus and says, what's the great commandment? What's the first commandment? He says, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Self is the very last thing he mentions there. And then in Philippians chapter 2, 
let's esteem others greater than ourselves. And the example he gives is Jesus, who esteemed us so great that he was willing to leave his place in heaven, come down here as a peasant, as a poor carpenter's son, and then put himself in our place on the cross and die the death that we deserved. God loved himself so much that he gave himself for you. If anyone's got the right to love himself and love what's good in himself, it would be God. But he's shown his own love toward us and that he gave us his son while we were still sinners. Romans 5 verse 8 says that. That's love. He gave according to our need, not according to his. We'd love for you to respond to his love today. If you're willing to give yourself to him, if you're not a Christian yet, and that's something you need to take care of, we'd love to help you with that. If you're willing to come forward confessing that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God, to enter into the waters of baptism with your repentance, having your sins washed away, we want to help you with that today. That'd be great. You'd become a part of the bride of Christ. And this marriage uh, example, this marriage parable, would make so much more sense in your life then. But if that's not where you are, if you're already part of Christ's family, and you're struggling with these romantic ideas, if that's sort of... Uh, shown you sort of what your life is like. If you've got romantic ideas about love in the general sense, if you only serve somebody because of what you'll get out of it, even in the church, that's a dangerous attitude, not just in the marriage. If we're only serving because we'll get something out of it, then we've got a romantic notion of love. We need to get back to God's selfless, service-oriented notion of love that's based on Him and what He's done. We want to help you with that as well. Whatever need you may have, we love you. We want you to love God. Come forward and let that be made known as we stand and sing this song for your encouragement.